0: Welcome to Smart Counsel. Empathy and Privilege, Betrayal and Rage, and Protesting the Death of George Floyd. To learn how to support this podcast, please visit patreon.com/smartcounsel. I'm Reese Basimio, a counselor in Gresham, Oregon, and today I want to talk about empathy and privilege, betrayal and rage, and the protests surrounding the murder of George Floyd. This conversation is a two-part challenge. One part is for white people who, like me, have been and are sometimes confused and even frustrated by the protests and riots and all the anger lately on the streets. People who wonder why people of color and their allies have to be so loudly out in the streets, and sometimes we think the whole situation is just overblown. The other part is for those partners who have ever lied to, emotionally abused, or betrayed their primary partner. And this group could include both men and women, white and black people, queer and straight people, rich and poor, Um, but typically it involves some sort of addictive or compulsive behavior, uh, what's also been called an integrity abuse disorder. Upon discovering they've been lied to or betrayed, the partners of these addict abusers demonstrate some behavior patterns that are peculiarly similar to those we've been seeing on the news. I want to talk about how betrayed partners may have something important to teach us, particularly us privileged white folks. And I'm absolutely issuing this challenge to my own self. Watching these things on the news has been hard. It's been sobering. It's been confusing. It's brought up a lot of feelings and a lot of questions. And I, I don't have all of the answers, but it is. A, I feel it is an important conversation to, to be thinking about. And um, I do want to emphasize that every, every challenge I, I, I issue is also to myself, and every critique I make of uh, white folks and betrayers is also directed at myself. And to be clear, I'm speaking as a white male. My perspective is formed by the lens of my privilege, and I acknowledge that there are significant gaps in my perspective. If you, the listener, come upon such a gap and feel so inclined, I invite you to reach out to me, to let me know your perspective, that my understanding may become more complete. My email is reese at newpatterncounseling.com. That's R-H-Y-S at newpatterncounseling.com. For the last week or so, there has been a palpable tension in the air, even in my quiet suburban corner of the world. Blue summer sky, birds chirping, beautiful flowers, even packs of children playing too close together. Typically, a really refreshing scene for me, but this week is different. This week, I know a few miles away my friends, my colleagues, my neighbors, and many strangers are out on the streets. I know there are signs being held and chants being chanted. I know tension is high and anger is even higher. I know that, here in America, the almighty topic of the coronavirus has overnight been supplanted by conversations around race, murder, justice, and privilege. I know my world is shifting in a direction I could not have imagined, much faster than I can keep up, and the sign of this is that conversations that are not about the murders and protests, the typically normal conversations, feel like a violation. This is a difficult time and a confusing one. Protests, like we've seen in some of our major cities, make us uncomfortable, and when they turn to riots, they are ugly. And it's hard to understand how something so destructive and heated could be vital or expected or serve any sort of helpful function. Naturally, the world of white people onlooking has been caught up in enthusiastic debates because we, as white people, have that as part of our privilege. We get to partake of other people's pain as something sensational, exciting, or enraging, and then debate the thing from the safety of our own Facebook account. We wonder, is there, was there, any way other than a series of protests and riots to get their point across? I know I want to point the finger and say, yes, you should have been more conventionally polite, but I know that's been tried and failed, and I know that the collective body of our community holds the pain within itself of a whole history of wounds. I also know that there is a whole other community, probably many of them white and many of them male and many of them rich, who will see the riots on TV, switch the channel, and consciously or unconsciously, verbally or quietly, dismiss the whole thing. They will say those, insert derogatory term, people, are overreacting and irresponsible and maybe even dangerous. They will not consider their experience nor the expression of it to be valid. Personally, I try to skip out on as much online conversation as possible. My in-person conversations have been more meaningful. Delightfully, in all my conversations with uh, actual in-the-flesh white people, there is a unanimous agreement that the status quo is unacceptable, that all humans are equally valuable, and that murder in all forms is bad, but the murder of a vulnerable person by a powerful person is especially awful and egregious. But then we have our own debates. They're friendlier because they're in person, and they're mostly about violence. Should the protesters be protesting? Should the rioters be rioting? Should they have smashed in the Apple store? Is violence actually effective? What is really being accomplished? And what on earth am I supposed to do about it? And here is where we as a nation, particularly we white people, might be able to learn something from the world of sex addiction and betrayal trauma. I am a dual diagnosis counselor with a specialty in compulsive and problematic sexual behaviors. Almost every day of almost every week, I talk with people about pornography and masturbation, having sex, having relationships, creating intimacy, and rebuilding trust. I have these conversations with a small handful of women, but with many, many, many more men who... I'm I'm a white counselor, so I tend to be sought out by white men, so I have these conversations with white men. I work with these men who come in with compulsive behavior patterns, with sex, pornography, or drugs, usually and instead of or. With some exploration, typically these men have some form of an integrity abuse disorder, a pattern of acting out deception, emotional abuse, and gaslighting that wreaks havoc on the whole family system and not just on the behaviors, but on the very self-concept. Something about uh, lying to a person to their face, it destroys their capacity to trust themselves or anyone else and destroys any semblance of confidence and it makes them extremely susceptible to further victimization. Now, obviously, Betrayal trauma and integrity abuse disorders are different from systemic racism. Uh, systemic racism isn't necessarily characterized by bold lying all the time. But both of these both of these experiences are characterized by emotional abuse and dehumanization and gaslighting and minimizing and blame shifting and a uh, complete skipping over any Semblance of prioritizing the other person's experience. Um, they're both characterized by exploitation and entitlement in one form or another. And that's why, that's part of why I, I make this connection. When I'm talking with men who have acted out and violated their primary relationships, talking about that inevit- inevitably means talking with the women trying to piece together their psychological and emotional safety in the wake of discovering their partner's betrayal. These wives or husbands, fiancés, partners, girlfriends, boyfriends, they're the people that the addict abusers love the most and hurt the most deeply. These partners experience a deep and special kind of pain as a result of their various forms of acting out, particularly infidelity. Probably the most recurring and most difficult conversations have to do with rebuilding trust and empathy. We're always talking about challenges in rebuilding trust and healing a relationship after a physical or emotional affair or other breach of contract. The work is pretty intense, and most of the acting out partners recoil strongly at the idea of closely examining the impact their behaviors have had on their partners. This week, we had a break when the protests began in earnest, and when at least one of the protests became a riot. long rage bubbled up, spilled over, and took shape as shattered storefront windows, burning cars, graffiti everywhere, mobilized armed forces, curfews, injuries, tear gas, and shouting. Lots of shouting. Meanwhile, as all of this has been happening in my city, of Portland, Oregon, as well as in other cities across the nation, in my tiny office in downtown Gresham, I find myself continuing to have conversations about the impact of betrayal trauma. At least the conversations have been supposed to be about betrayal trauma and empathy. Uh, This week, though, everyone has been preoccupied with racism and social justice and wanting to talk about that, uh, which is not not too bad for, for an assortment of white guys. But they'll say, look at all those activists, and they'll say it with adoration, and they'll say, I feel like I should be doing more to support the cause, and they'll say, I feel a deep heaviness, and they'll say, wow, can you believe the craziness? They've been eager to have conversations about George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. They've been bothered by their lack of engagement and excited to think about ways they could engage more in social justice, and they've been very open to learning more about how to mind the impact they have from within their white privilege. Along the way, there's been general bafflement at those other white people who are unwilling or unable to enter into the experience of the average person of color and generally compulsively counter the idea of Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter. Here's where I started to notice the ease with which we fixate on problems outside of ourselves and outside of our immediate sphere of impact. Movements like anti-racial movement, activities like protests and demonstrations, and sometimes riots are essential, but they are complicated by the fact that they are big and exciting. And there's uh, nothing an addict in recovery likes more than something big and exciting that will be driven by adrenaline and maybe some dopamine. For people of color, these demonstrations and protests have been crucial maneuvers for survival. For us white people wanting to be allies, I think we have to check ourselves and make sure we are actually being allies and not just romanticizing the notion of being part of a long-awaited revolution. For most of us white people, definitely myself included, um, part of our privilege means that anti-racial demonstrations and protests get to be add-ons to our lives, important and good ones, but potentially also things we invest in at the expense of our own inner lives and other responsibilities. So in the case of this conversation this week, I have been sitting with men who are very comfortable talking about empathizing with the experience of people of color, out there, in the city, in the streets, separate from their own individual life experience. Uh, But something changes whenever I, I try to direct it back to talking about their own lives and empathizing with the experiences of their partners, generally their female partners, who have been most directly impacted by their acting out actions. And that's where they start to have their own defensive reactions. My partner's overreacting. She's controlling. She's paranoid. Nothing I do is ever good enough. She doesn't believe in me. She has access to all my emails and texts and tracks my location through the city, and she still thinks I'm lying. Can't she see all the work I put into my recovery? Can't she see how sorry I am? She demanded I get rid of my friends, and I did it for her. She accuses me of thinking about having sex with anything with two legs when I promise I was just stretching my neck. It's not my fault the women in yoga pants just happened to be there. We can't watch movies together anymore because she's convinced I'm jacking off to every actress that she thinks I'm attracted to. She demanded full access to all of my emails, all of my texts, and demanded I give up all social media, and she made me abandon all my female friendships, and she tracks my location, and I agree to all of this, and she still doesn't trust me. She keeps accusing me of checking out random women on the street when all I'm doing is... Scratching my knee. She's obsessing over details and always finding fault with me. Yes, she does these things. And yes, these things are unkind. And ultimately, these things do not promote connection and intimacy. She does them because she is hurt beyond reason and she carries this pain in her very body. She does these things because she is angry. She obsesses over details, details of your behavior as an expression of rage. Anger, resentment, rage. Oh, she has so much rage. And the man at my office often asks why his female partner cannot be kinder or more understanding, and why can she not empathize with his experience and see his efforts? And her defensiveness and anger, and even vindictive, mean-sounding criticism is ugly. It's hard to understand how words and gestures ordinarily so destructive could be vital or normal or serve any sort of helpful function. But they are part of her cycle of healing. They are part of her cycle of going through crisis, finding her way, and finding her way out of it. And to the abuser, I say, consider that the devastation of betrayal, deceit, gaslighting, and emotional abuse she has experienced at your hands, that after all of that, rage is the only way she feels safe to show up with you. Consider that beneath her anger is grief, and deep sadness, and profound loss, and fear, and terror. Consider that the abrasiveness of her words and gestures are her reaction to you messing her up. You need to listen to her words, and make space for her feelings, and prioritize her experience. Betrayal trauma and systemic racism have this in common. That they dehumanize, destroy self-concept, and through gaslighting, completely overturn a person's sense of self. These forces erode a person's connection to a stable and rational, safe reality. Speaking as a man who has been the betrayer, I know that when I have been confronted with her pain and anger, anger that is a direct result of what I have done to her, I am terrified and overwhelmed, and I am deeply saddened and shamed, and right away I try to deflect her attention, to defend myself and to minimize her actions, or to blame shift and find something, anything, at fault in her. And I'll say, her problem isn't that bad. She's overreacting. She asked for it. She's troublesome. My needs weren't being met. If she would just speak to me nicely. And this only furthers the abuse and widens the schism between us. But meanwhile, What does it really cost me, the man who has betrayed her, to believe her, to center her experience and for a time prioritize it? Why is it difficult for me to consider that these things she says about me and about what her experience has been may be true? What makes it even more difficult to consider these experiences may be a result of my actions? Here is where the conversations intersect. I am both a white man who is part of a society dominated by white privilege and I am a person in recovery who has betrayed my partner. In both conversations, I am challenged, because in both conversations, I bear responsibility, and in neither conversation do I get to come out looking good. But always, I must face the question, what does it cost me as a betrayer to center her experience and prioritize it, even just for a moment or season? Likewise, what does it cost me as a white person to center and prioritize the experience of people of color, even just for a moment or season? I know the costs. They are prices I hear talked about in session, and they are realities in my own life. Believing the stories of abuse and thus validating them means my own experience would be compromised, because I wouldn't get to just be happy-go-lucky. I'd have to enter into their pain with them and feel it. I wouldn't get to just continue doing what I've always been doing. Some of what I have been doing has been hurtful, and I'd need to change. I'd have to change a lot. I'd have to see myself as the aggressor, even the abuser, at least a little and maybe a lot, and I would have to change. My defensiveness is an expression of my own anger, which is a cover for my own fears. I've been struggling to find my own self, I'll say, find my own voice, my own sense of self. I'll cite my own insecurities, my own traumas, my own abuse, and look at my own growth journey and say, I've come so far to be me, and now I don't want to give that up. Centering someone else's experience would feel like a compromise to myself and a step backward. At which point I can legitimately question myself and say, So, how real really is my growth? If I really believe the things that I believe, I would not be defensive around them. If I were really actually secure in myself, I would not be needing to defend myself or attack other people. Maybe I have not actually come as far as I think I have. Now, I certainly can seek a sense of security and empowerment. Any person can, any person of color. Any white person can seek their own sense of security and empowerment. But thinking of people with privilege and power seeking more security, more empowerment, the reality is that we should never take these things by force. And I can say as a person with privilege and with power, much as I am a human with inherent dignity and worth, I am not entitled to pleasure myself and inflate myself and build myself up at the expense of someone else's humanity. And that goes for lovers, romantic partners, spouses, beloved family members. That goes for people of color, for women, for queer folk, poor folk, differently abled and neurologically diverse folk, every kind of person with a little or a lot less power than me. One of the ancient teachers in my tradition, St. John Chrysostom, said that the greatest and only safe investment we can make with our financial wealth is into the poor among us through almsgiving. Expanding on this thought, I would say the greatest and perhaps only ultimate meaningful investment of power, privilege, resource, and energy is into the lifting up of those more vulnerable than us. This, then, is the invitation and challenge. First, it is an invitation for white people in any situation to consider and prioritize the experience of people of color. Second, this is an invitation for betraying and acting out partners to consider and prioritize the experience of their partner. The second part is for acting out partners for addicts for betrayers it is for male partners female partners white partners and partners of color it is an invitation to consider your impact on the other person own it do not back down from it do not make excuses do not look away from the other person's pain validate and do not minimize their experience do so in a direct and straightforward manner and do not over dramatize the moment or turn them into the aggressor with you as their martyr, their victim. Whatever you do, do not make this a competition about who is hurting the most or whose experience is the most important. The power you have, with all your privilege, is to create a safe space where the vulnerable person can enter in and there go on their healing journey in peace. Will you do this with me? Will you join me in this work?